Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today on the show, we're joined by David Pick, the CEO of Institute of Managers and Leaders. David is passionate about developing intentional leaders and seeing less accidental managers. He's a storyteller, a rebel, and he even chose his name on the flip of a coin. We're going to deep dive into what it means to be a great leader and how to handle working for a horrible boss. Enjoy the show. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley and I'm hanging out with Em. Hey, Em. Hey, Shell. How are you? I'm going well. And we have a very special guest chatting to us today about leadership. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Shell. And thanks, Em. I'm not sure about the very special, um, <laughs> but I will take it. Thank you very much. And Dave, I would just like some clarification up front. How do I say your last name? Because I feel like it could be a bit controversial. Well, I'm not, let's not say controversial, but it is, well, it's difficult. Okay, so my okay. surname is Pick, and it's, it's, uh, it's P-I-C-H, but feel free to call me Pick. Pick. Um, because um, for a strange quirk of historical fate, I've ended up with a surname that I can't pronounce. And that's because um, on the night before I got married to my beautiful wife, um, she asked me to spin a coin to see who got whose surname. And um, we spun a coin and I lost. I chose tails. Um, never choose tails when, a, when you spin a coin. Um, the coin fell heads and I ended up the next day taking my wife's surname when we got married. And my wife's German. So I've ended up with a German surname that I cannot pronounce. So David Pick will do. Or for any of our Germanic speakers, it's Pick. I love that story. What a good story. That is so good. Mm. So just a bit of like pre-wedding gambling, really. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I do have a slight rebellious streak in me and I... I do um, encourage all of your listeners to rebel against all tra- any and all tradition at any point yeah, great. that they can. Well, I think that's a good thing for leaders to do as well. And today we're going to be chatting about leadership and we're really, uh, we've been really excited to have you on the show. You're obviously the CEO of Institute of Management and Leaders and so it's great to have you with us. We've had a lot of listeners ask questions about leadership, about management and about what that looks like. So we're going to jump straight in. And first off, I'd just love to know, Dave, why are you passionate about leadership? Mm, what, a, what a question to start with. So, yeah, so I am the chief exec of um, what's probably the the oldest and most respected leadership institutes in the world. So we've been, the Institute of Managers and Leaders used to be called the Australian Institute of Management. And uh, we've been around for almost 100 years, 80 years now. And um, when I look back over my humble career, I think I first became passionate about leadership, as many of your listeners would would be passionate about leadership because of a terrible, uh, because of an appalling example of leadership. And um, it was really that that made me 
um, yearn for something better. Um, albeit I was only 22 at the time, but I had a terrible example of leadership at an organization that I worked for in London. Um, I worked for an insurance company in the center of London. And um, on my first day in the job, um, so I used to, my first job out of university, I worked for Cadbury Schweppes. Um, would you believe my very first job was on the licorice all sort line. Um, I did the night shift on the licorice all sort line in Bassett's licorice all sorts that was owned by Cadbury Schweppes. And um, I did the night shift for six months in the factory wow. in Sheffield. And um, yeah, so I've, I've got a lifelong love of licorice all sorts, even though I worked surrounded by them through the night. You didn't, get, tur- you didn't get turned off licorice all sorts <laughs> after all that? <laughs> oh, no, I know. I absolutely still love them. I, I love uh, Cadbury's chocolate as well. I think I've just got that kind of as my first job after university. So I got this passion right. for it. Um, anyway, then I left Cadbury Schweppes and I joined an insurance company. And um, the reason I left Cadbury Schweppes was um, uh, they offered me more money. And my, my very first lesson in my working life was that you should never leave a job because you get offered more money. Um, because the job that I went to was with an insurance company in the centre of London. And on my very first morning of my of my job, um, I walked into this huge Gothic building in Hoburn in central London. Um, and I got told by somebody as I walked through the door that I'd walked in through the wrong door because um, I wasn't senior enough to enter through that door. And wow. um, yeah, yeah. And uh, this company that I worked for um, had, uh, would you believe, um, they had tea ladies who would push the tea urn down the corridors and they would knock on people's doors and offer them a cup of tea. Not me, of course, because I wasn't at the right seniority level to get free tea from the tea lady. And um, within three weeks of that role, I left um, because I couldn't stand it. It was culturally incompatible to me. And everything I saw about that organization was an example of really appalling leadership. And um, it was really that that ignited in me a desire to be a better leader myself in the future and to yearn for something better. Um, I was very fortunate that I left that company and I went to work for Hewlett Packard. And um, so I went from the most appalling example of leadership to probably the best example of corporate leadership because Hewlett Packard had the HP way and and a cultural way of dealing with people. And I was the head of HR for um, one of the business units, the computer business unit in Hewlett-Packard. And that was really when my career in leadership started. So I I became passionate about it through examples of of the dark side of leadership, which I think is in many cases where passion comes from. You know, it either comes from good examples or bad examples and wanting to do better. Dave, you haven't once mentioned the word management. And uh, I guess I'm now curious to understand from your perspective, where does the word management fit in or the role of a manager, so to speak? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny, you know, because um, at the Institute, we're, we're called the Institute of Managers and Leaders. And um, we, we we have a lot of kind of navel gazing and contemplating about the difference between management and leadership. And I try to avoid those conversations. Sorry, I don't avoid those conversations. Happy to have the conversation. But I, I try to avoid the, the, the debate about what's a manager and what's a leader because I kind of don't think it gets you anywhere. And it all gets a little bit semantic for me. And um, 
I think I think there can be a view that management is about the process of running things, whereas leadership is something that's a little bit more complicated and complex and a little bit more developed. But actually, you know, I, I don't I don't particularly get hung up on it. I consider myself to be both a manager and a leader. If somebody wants to call themselves a manager, then that's fine. We absolutely fundamentally and at the Institute, we fundamentally believe that management and leadership, whichever way you choose, whichever word you choose, is a profession. And we believe that you can be a professional manager and leader, just as you can be a professional accountant, a professional doctor, a professional lawyer. And and so we believe that managers and leaders should become chartered managers. You should become um, professional in your management and leadership. So we have a designation called chartered manager that we introduce in Australia. But you notice that that uses the word manager, chartered manager. So I'm not overly hooked up on on the use of words because I, I kind of think you get into a bit of a rabbit hole about it and and people will argue particularly some of our members who are slightly more mature or older again that's another you shouldn't use the word older you should say mature but these people are older and um, I'm older more um, experienced they, they would yeah more experienced you know but older you know and and people people of an older generation would use would be more um, used to using the word manager I suppose um, I think leader is a slightly more modern word but actually we're talking about the same thing we're talking about people that lead other people and lead businesses and their role is to take people on a journey towards an economic often end for an organization and that is in my view hard work yeah it's interesting where you're saying as a profession management and leadership as a profession is that as yeah. opposed to some of that logic that that you see in the workplace of you're an, an like innate leader or you're naturally mm. a good leader. Is that what you're trying to challenge there by saying um, leadership and management as a profession? Well, this is, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to challenge. And I think, um, I think it's time. I get, I get, this is where I, I do get quite passionate and you probably hear this in my voice now. Um, I, I think it's time that we started to take all of this leadership management stuff a lot more seriously because every example that I can think of of corporate failure, every mm. example is a, is a failure of leadership. And um, it's time that we called out poor behavior and poor management and leadership behavior. And it's time as, an, as a society, in my view, that we demand better of our political leaders, our corporate leaders, our sporting leaders. It's, it, and we can only demand better if there is a standard that we expect people to meet. So, and, and the best example I've got was an, is an example that I used during the, the recent Banking Royal Commission a couple of years ago, which, by the way, seems to have blown over, doesn't it? You know, yeah. all this corruption amongst the banks and, and it's all just blown over and very little happened. And at that time, um, I, I wrote to all of the CEOs of the major banks. I wrote to them all. And I asked them to allow me to interview them on stage um, at a function in Sydney, actually. And uh, only one of the CEOs replied to me. That was Shane Elliott, um, the CEO of ANZ Bank. He replied and he said, yep, I'll come along. And um, I interviewed him on stage and I asked him about the Banking Royal Commission and the media were there and and um, 
so, so I say thank you to Shane because he was the only CEO that came forward and said, yes, I'll be interviewed. But when, what, during the lunchtime, during the lunch that I was, I was talking to him, I asked him a question. And I think this question sums up why I think management and leadership is a profession. So I said this to him. I said, would you allow non-professional, non-qualified people to manage the finances of your bank? And he said, no, of course not. Why would you ask that question? That's absolutely ridiculous. So I said to him, I see you only have qualified chartered accountants running the accounting and finance function of your business. And he said, yep, absolutely, of course. And I said, so why do you allow non-qualified, non-professional people to manage the people in your business? Surely the people in your business are as important, if not more important, than the financial resources of your business. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I don't know. I can't answer that question. So you will. So organizations will only insist on having chartered accountants, chartered engineers, um, professionally qualified lawyers. But for people, they'll promote anybody to manage teams of two, three, four hundred people. And the problem is what you get is accidental managers. You get people who've got no qualifications, no skills, no experience in managing people. And they get put in front of um, 50, 10, 20, 200 people and teams fall apart. Mental health issues go through the roof. Absenteeism goes through the roof. And that's because typically accidental managers have no idea how to manage. That is so good. I feel like um, just hearing you unpack that of the corporate, like there's such a, I guess, sense in in the workplace that you need these technical qualifications in these different industries but to be Correct. a manager, you can just kind of you can just kind of step into it and on the job learn. But I love yeah. what you're challenging there, Dave, around actually the the people resources are far more important. So why don't we put the same impetus on leadership as we yeah. do on any other technical profession? Well, well, here's the thing, right? Um, so, uh, so when I worked for Hewlett Packard, I ended up going into the marketing department. And I worked in the marketing, so I left HR and I worked in the marketing department. And um, there came a point when the head of marketing left and the person that got promoted to be the next head of marketing was the person in the team who was the best person at marketing. Okay, so that is a classic Mm. example of a technical specialist who got promoted to lead the team. That person was a toxic, horrible bully. Fantastic marketing person, but a dreadful manager and leader. That, for me, is a, is, is a microcosm of the problem of the accidental manager, the technical specialist that gets promoted. Dave, if you cast your memory back, do you recall whether or not people knew that about that person while they were in a technical individual contributor role? Was it found out when yep. they became a leader? Or Okay, interesting. I think it's typically, um, typically organisations – they opt for the they quite often opt for the path of least resistance mm-hmm. they believe that because somebody is the best marketing person the best lawyer the best accountant they will be the best person to lead the marketing team the legal team the accounting team the problem is and this is the prob- this is the difference between the accidental manager and so my organization um, the institute of managers and leaders we believe that you Um, Far from being an accidental manager, you need to be what we call, and we own this phrase, you need to be an intentional leader. 
And the intentional leader is the exact opposite of the accidental manager. The problem with the accidental manager is, in, in, in almost any case, you can pick a career. And any career, I think this rule holds true. The skills that you need to be technically good at your job are almost always diametrically opposite to the skills that you need to lead the people doing that job. And that's the problem. The problem is the person that's the best marketing person needs different skills than the person who leads the marketing team. And we have all, I'm sure you both have, and every single one of your listeners has worked for an accidental manager. And it's horrific. It's bullying, harassment, mental health issues, absenteeism, you name it. We've all worked for them. And in the vast majority of cases, I don't blame the accidental manager. So this isn't an individual problem. This isn't about kicking the problem onto the person. This is institutionalized laziness and an institutionalized lack of recognition of the skills of management mm. and leadership. And it's shameful. Yeah, You can tell I'm a bit passionate about oh, it. I love it. So on that, Dave, how do you go from being an accidental manager to a good manager? What does that mm. look like to an intentional ma- leader, as you mentioned? By the way, that's that's why I wanted to come on to your podcast and, and, and talk to you and why I think podcasts like yours that um, we, we perhaps will go on because I'm, I'm also quite passionate about this whole concept of millennials and we might talk about that in a minute. Um, but here, here's the thing, right? Um, if any of your listeners are wanting to get into or progress their journey from man- along the lines of management and leadership, what I absolutely believe, and if I'm qualified in any way to give anybody advice about anything, um, and sometimes I think people give far too much advice and it all gets very confusing, but I would say this, you've got to set out to intend to lead. You've got to be intentional. Don't allow things to happen by accident. And we say at the Institute, we've done some research, we have a research team, we've done some research and um, we've, we've, we've brought it down to six things and we call them the six layers of intentional leadership. And um, I, I could talk to you for the next three hours about what these six layers are, but let me just pick a couple of them. Let me just pick two. Um, I'll pick one, um, the first one. Um, we believe that all people who are on the journey to be good leaders and better leaders need to have a mentor. So we believe that mentoring sits at the heart of intentional leadership. And that's because leadership's quite lonely. You know, I'm, I'm the leader of, a, of, a, of an institute. I've got the board of directors above me. I've got my team of people below me in for the best possible, you know, you know what I mean by above and below. It's, it's not quite that hierarchical, but um, I'm squeezed between that and it's pretty lonely. So leadership is quite lonely. And it's a really good idea for people to get independent advice out of their circle of colleagues. And that's what mentoring is. So I have two mentors and I bounce things off my mentors and I give them a call. I'm calling one after this, actually. I give my mentors a call. He's in South Australia and I just have a chat with him about stuff. And I say, oh, you know, I've got this issue going on. And I'm also a mentor to two people. Um, so so I, I strongly advise any of your listeners, if you want to be better leaders, is get a mentor. That's number one. Second thing. Can Sorry. I? Oh, that's okay. I just uh, will pause you there. Where did you find your mentors? Because I know that that's a yeah. question our listeners would be left with. Where did where did your yeah. mentors come from? Oh well, look. Um, of course, I'm I'm the chief exec of of an institute, um, and we're a membership institute. So so, so you just course, picked, picked your, the best members. <laughs> well, well, you could. 
Very simply, you could join the, the Institute. So at the very core of the offering that we have to our members is a free mentoring program. It's called Member Exchange. And we have about 3,000 people at any one point being mentors or mentees. Um, but of course, if people didn't want to join IML, that's absolutely cool. You need to seek out people who can be confidants and are trustworthy and you can have confidence in. Because obviously, it's a, a mentor is not someone that you just go and have a cup of tea with and a chit chat. It's someone that you can bounce issues off and you can talk about significant things that are going on in your life and in your work life. So it's not a counsellor. It's somebody who you can talk about stuff that's happening at work that's on your mind. And it's and this ability to navigate through the workplace because the workplace is not is not easily you know navigatable. It's it's a tough thing. You know, it's people and they bring their lives to work and you've got to find your way through this. Um, so my, my advice is either find a structured program like the one we've got or sit down and really put some thought into who you would like. To, to act as a mentor and perhaps who you would like to mentor. Because I also believe that the flip side of mentoring is that you can mentor people. Mm -hmm. oh, and the second thing is we believe at the Institute that, that there should be so much more emphasis on people being self-aware, okay? Um, now, again, I could talk for two hours about self-awareness, but let me just... So me could just, I. Um, don't, don't get me started yeah. either, Dave. <laughs> we'll be in trouble. Well, let's... Well, let's let's do this because this is always very controversial when I talk about this, but let's throw this in, right? I think that at the moment, the big social media, the big uh, pseudo-psychology um, load of bullshit that's around in leadership, and you can edit that word out, I do apologize, um, is around authenticity, right? If I see another meme of a baby punching the air, telling everyone to be authentic, I'll go mad. Authenticity is a load of crap. It's absolute garbage. It's psychobabble. It's the kind of stuff that um, these self-help gurus get on stage and they whiz around telling everyone to be authentic. Mm, authenticity. I, I have uh, pondered that before, that it can be an excuse to not change or not even well, entertain Well, it's an idea. excuse for poor behaviour. Mm. How many people do we hear these days say, well, I'm just being me? Mm. Well, don't be you. Be better than you. Mm. Go, learn about And, and self-awareness is about taking feedback and changing. Authenticity doesn't demand a process of change. It's, it's bizarre when people say, well, I'm just being me. Well, you're just rude and horrible. Be different. Yeah, I've had these conversations with people before where they're like, oh, this is who I am. And I'm like, yeah. You know, you can change, like, or even just yeah. think of it as evolution. You can become develop. You can develop. You can become better. You can that's learn right. and progress. And that's mm. right. And if you're going to be in a fifty year, you've got a fifty year career. Like some of our listeners, they're twenty yeah. years old. They'll be working till they're sixty five, seventy. You hope that when you get to age sixty five, you're very different to how you are when you're twenty years old. But, but you can only do that. You see, I, I totally, I totally agree with that, Shell. But you can only do that if you put things in place to allow and to give the opportunity for improvement and progress. So what, what we do with organizations and managers and leaders is we say, the very first thing they need to do is implement 360 degree feedback. Mm -hmm. So if you're not taking feedback from people and analyzing that feedback and then working on it, then it, how are you gonna improve as a leader and, and how are you going to um, get better and how are you going to illustrate to people that you're doing things differently? So the best example I've got is at the Institute, we, we've implemented 
what we call open 360 degree feedback. So um, every year, um, the I report to the board of directors, the board of directors choose seven of my staff and they get feedback on me and they tell me who those seven people are. And then they share the feedback with me. Now, of course, we're a leadership institute, so you'd expect us to be at the more progressive curve. But let me tell you, that's really challenging. Like because, because um, let me, I'll give, uh, the best example I've got is in my rec most recent appraisal, I think I'm the best strategic leader there is. I've got a strategy. I'm always talking about strategy. I'm obsessed with strategy. Um, the feedback I got from my staff was that they don't fully understand the strategy of the Institute. And I was horrified. But for me, the learning in that is that it's not good enough for me to talk about strategy. I've got to explain it in more detail because if I'm taking people on a journey with me, they've got to fully understand that journey that we're going on. So now I think that that's, we're, we're at the very progressive end of 360 degree feedback. It's very challenging for most managers and leaders to do it in such an open way. So, but we, we firmly believe that if you're a, early level manager or leader and you want to get into management and leadership you need to be getting feedback from people and you need to get yourself into a space where you can accept feedback and improve on the basis of it because the bottom line is if if you ask seven people to tell you things about you and you keep hearing the same themes that's a pretty accurate perception of you so, Dave, you've talked about the need to get feedback and why self-awareness is really important for leaders. We've got lots of listeners at the moment who are individual contributors and, and part of their career goal is to eventually move into a management role. What's yeah. your advice on how you can make that transition successfully and not be an accidental manager or leader? If you, if you take what I call the traditional route, um, to management and leadership, it's becoming more and more difficult. There's absolutely no doubt about that because I think um, I think organisations now, um, thankfully, are recognising the need for management and leadership experience and runs on the board, if you like. So I think it is becoming more and more difficult. And by the way, I think I think post COVID, it's going to be getting even more difficult because I think. Um, layers of management are likely to be removed for for the foreseeable future or for the short term. You know, um, so my my strong advice is that your listeners start to think slightly differently about management and leadership, and um, and the way that they can think differently is to think outside of the workplace. And I think you can gain management and leadership stripes, if you like, in other areas. And I would um, so and I think also these days workplaces are looking for much more rounded people um, and for people that are not just 24 seven work focused. I think thankfully those days are a little bit behind us and more and more workplaces are, uh, are, are what I would call slightly more progressive, um, whatever that word means. But um, this idea that you're hooked to your desk 24/7 is is gone mainly. So I would I would ask people I would suggest that people look outside of the workplace, clubs and societies, associations, get involved in things. Um, so one example I've got is that I'm the president of my local primary school P and C. And um, for, for me, that's about giving back. Um, that P, the, the PNC happens to have about 50 staff because we run outside school care for kids and all that kind of stuff. But I would encourage people to get involved um, in the local dance club or 
golf club or whatever they're involved in, whatever they have the potential to get involved in, because management and leadership is not just a workplace phenomenon. It's it's about leading and contributing in different walks of life. So that would be one piece of advice I would give. Yeah, I love that. And I, I do agree that it is really hard if you don't have the runs on the board. And mm. I've heard this a lot from staff as they're applying uh, for leadership roles. They're like, how do I get into it if if I don't have the experience? It's like this kind of vicious loop. I guess the other thing yeah. I'm interested in, what learning opportunities should people be seeking out in addition to finding that practical experience? Mm-hmm. So, um one of the other layers of leadership we talk about, I told you that we think this about six. One of them was mentoring. Uh, one of them was about self-awareness. And the other one is something that we call continuous professional development. And um, that for me is about knowing your stuff in management and leadership. And um, I think too many people these days, um, or there is a trend these days, for people to think everything's easy and think they don't need to research things. And of course, I interview lots and lots of people who want to join the Institute. And um, the one thing I find really quite impressive is people that know, I, I, I find it quite impressive that people have done stuff, but I also find it quite impressive that people know stuff. And it's that combination of doing stuff and knowing stuff that's actually the most impressive. Um, and particularly when people know stuff that's, that's modern, and they're not relying on stuff that they learned 20, 30 years ago. You know, I learned, I did psychology at university, but that was 30 years ago when Freud was all the rage. I can't keep banging on about Freud because it's all out of date. Yeah. So I think what you've got to be is modern in your thinking and, and management. And so, so I definitely don't think that people should just be academic in terms of management and leadership. That's not enough. But I do think you need to know about management and leadership and you need to know about the most, the more modern things. I don't know. Simon Sinek's views on purpose you should know about. Do you have one? Because if you'll be. You're right. Finish up, Dave. No, go on. I was just going. I think you're about to ask me the question that I was about to say. But I I don't reckon I am. So you finish and then I'll throw a little curveball. I was just going to say, I think think you need need to be, um, I think you should be watching stuff um watching ted talks um watching um thinkers in management and leadership and their modern views on it because the world is moving really quickly in management and leadership um so i did um i presented at a conference uh, last year it seems like ages ago that even conferences were happening mm. um but i presented at a conference last year in recruitment and i talked about blind recruitment and um, my view that in about five years time, the only recruitment that will happen will be blind recruitment, you know, where they take people's ethnicity and age and even university off CVs to take away unconscious bias. Um, and that's a really mod, that's really modern thinking in recruitment. And I think, I think uh, many of your listeners should become aware, educate themselves. I don't mean go to university and things like that. They could do that. But I, I just think be, become aware of stuff. There's so much information available. Um, so spend some time researching stuff. We weren't actually that far off Sorry. each other. My uh, question to you <laughs> is going to be just while we've got you on that thought pattern, have you got one or two book recommendations? Uh, you know, is there something, uh, you seem like you're probably a reader, but that might be an assumption that yeah. I'm making unfairly. Uh, uh, look, Simon Sinek's Start With Why is just a kind of seminal book on getting per- your purpose right. Because um, 
I do, I do find, and this isn't a millennial thing, by the way, and uh, perhaps after this, we might talk about my views on millennials. Um, uh, I, think, I think before people think about, think that they want to go into management and leadership or into anything, you know, become a vet, become a doctor, become a train driver, whatever, I think it's worth, worth sitting down and analyzing with yourself what your purpose is, why you want to go and do these things, and work out whether that is actually the end game for you. And um, I kind of think when I look back on my own career that I kind of wish I'd done that back then. I wish Simon Sinek had written Start With Why um, 25 years ago, because I think it's really worth this idea of, I, I like the whole idea of, you know, this trend towards kind of mood boards and vision boards and all of that kind of stuff. What is it you really want to get out of things? Because you might think that you want to be a manager and a leader, but actually when you research it and go into it, it might actually not be for you at all. So I think, so, so I think that's, that's something that, that is worth focusing on. So yeah, start, start with why Simon Sinek, that's a pretty good book. Do you have an opinion on what, and maybe, you know, I think millennials, this is a good place to start that conversation. <laughs> what about our listeners who either realize straight up that they don't want to be a leader or perhaps they go through this process of research and realize they don't want to be a leader. Do you have an opinion on what career progression could look like otherwise? Mm. I even question the the whole concept of, of career progression. You know, this idea of progression mm. kind of scares me a little bit. Like, wh why do we always have to progress? Mm. Do you know? I don't even know what that means anymore. Like, does it? If so, I actually really struggle with that because I, 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 this this concept that everybody has to be on this journey and it's always upwards. Does does that mean in kind of financial terms? Or sh sh for me, I wonder whether I wonder whether it's much more about kind of life experience and um, I don't know about progress. And maybe so. Um... For example, I'll give you an example. Right, I was. Um, and this is well documented and I, I spoke a lot about this um, about two years ago. So uh, there was a point in my career when I was the general manager of a law firm um, in Sydney, a very big law firm actually, I was the GM. And um, I tell the story uh, that I used, I lived in um, McMahon's Point in Sydney and I used to get the train to Wynyard Station. It's only two stops. I used to go across the Harbour Bridge and I'd get off at Wynyard Station and I would sit on the platform of Wynyard Station, sometimes for between two and three hours, because I didn't want to go into work. And then when I got into work at the law firm, I was the general manager, by the way, um, I got into work, I'd go and sit in the toilet, and I had to take my shirt off in the toilet because I was sweating so badly. Um, and I wasn't sweating because it was hot or I'd walked a lot, I just had a real anxiety problem. And that was really the start of an anxiety disorder. Um, and eventually I went to see a clinical psychologist and the clinical psych in about the third session, I think she was kind of building up to this big revelation. And the big revelation was, why are you doing it? Why, why don't you quit? You hate your job. You don't like the people. And I was, I was sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, why don't I quit? Because, but the thing that was stopping me quitting was this idea of progression. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd got to that next rung on the ladder it wasn't a very nice rung and I didn't really like the ladder. And just to complete that story, by the way, um, I took a holiday and I went to Koh Samui um, and I was sitting on the beach in Koh Samui um, looking out to sea 
lamenting my life, lamenting sitting on the station and being anxious and um, heading towards depression. And I thought, oh, screw this. And I walked into a little telephone kiosk that was on the beach at Chuang on Koh Samui. And I called the law firm from the beach and I resigned and said, I'm never coming back to work. And I went back and sat on the beach. This is a dead true story. I went back and sat back down on the beach. And an hour later, I turned to my left and I got chatting um, to a very nice young lady um, who was sitting on the beach next to me. And I'm now married to that young lady. I took her name and we've got two kids. You have the best stories. That is amazing. She was just on holiday. She was backpacking. She was German. I got chatting and um, that was um, uh, 16 years ago. And we're now married. I thought we yeah. peaked with the and flip just of the quit. coin. That's so good. Yeah, I love, it's a true story I love that, that so. Dave, though, because that's very countercultural. What you're saying there of there's such an achievement orientation that we have in the work mm. in, in the world of work, yeah. where we're always wanting to progress, be that hierarchically or in terms of salary. But I like that you're pushing back against that and going, no, what's your what's your mm. why? What's your value and purpose? Do yeah. more of that and less of the drive towards achievement or progression. So I think I think progression. I like the idea of progression, but I wonder whether we're we're we we're, we're too we're too quick to value to to talk about progression in terms of career and financial and that kind of stuff, and whether what we actually need to aim for is progression as people, yeah, as citizens, as so so. Um, the end of that story is that I came back from. Kosamui, I'd resigned from my job. I never went back to the law firm. I never picked up my stuff off my desk. Um, I went back to university. Um, I went to the University of Western Sydney and did a psych major. And then after I'd graduated, I were I went to work for Canteen, the kids' cancer charity. Um, and my job at Canteen, so I was the head of marketing and fundraising for Canteen for five years, and I was paid almost exactly 30% of what I was paid as the general manager of the law firm. But I was a million times happier. I didn't sit, the the, the interesting thing is that Canteen's head office in Sydney was very close to the head office of the law firm. And um, I used to get off at Wynyard Station and instead of sitting there for two hours sweating and being anxious, I'd bound into work. So I'd found a purpose and a, a progression. My life had progressed but my bank balance hadn't, but I was so much happier. And I think that's, um, um, if there's a lesson in anything that I've ever done, I think there's a, the, le- the, le- the sorry, there's no lesson in that for anybody other than for me. The lesson in that for me is uh, having a massive salary and a flash sports car doesn't make me happy. Mm. It actually made me very, very stressed and very anxious. And um, because of that, I've I've got my own resilience plan and I deal with anxiety. But that started because of this societal norm that you're supposed to be climbing this ladder and, and it, it, that was, just wasn't right. And it might not be right for some of your listeners. And that is a pressure that we do find that people, particularly in their 20s, so that early part of their career, there's that pressure to feel like we need to know what's the next role. Are we making that mm. progress that other people can observe based on whether it be material things or, or job titles? And yet with it's perhaps easier to see with hindsight, but if we can shift to this idea of it being more internal progress and actually uh, without sounding too corny, uh, just becoming more happy at work 
or, or happy in your life because of the role that work plays, then perhaps that's something worth aiming for. But you, I, I dare say that takes experience and it takes trial and error and some experimenting. It would be very hard to map that out and nail it in one go. Oh, of course, but I, I do, I do think um, I know that you think that's a cliche, but I, I absolutely believe that happiness is completely underrated. Mm. I think we've underrated happiness. Like, I think if we sat down and said, right, I want to do things that make me happy, I think too few people do that. And uh, which, which interesting is a really nice segue into millennials, mm. right? Because this whole concept of millennials. Um, I struggle with a little bit because I don't see anything different in these this angst and these um, questions than when I was 22 or 23. They're exactly the same. The pressures are exactly the same. I mean, there are different kind of pressures, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. But the, the actual when you actually break it down, other than te- the te- the advancements in technology, the, the the pressures of wanting to climb ladders and get get more senior and earn more money were are exactly the same and i as i say i'm married to a millennial and i think the pressures are uh, that that my wife goes through are exactly the same as the pressures i was going through when i was when i was her age so i think we can get a bit hooked up on that i don't i don't think things have changed too much um the stuff that has changed i think has changed for the better so i think workplaces now are much more open and much more um, there's much more emphasis on work-life balance, and there's there's a much there's a much greater recognition that there is an otherness to work that's as important as work itself. So I'm much more optimistic about the workplace, despite pandemics and COVID and all of that kind of stuff, which I think is going to have a bit of a knock up, a bit of a detrimental effect. But I'm much more hopeful that there's a recognition that. Um, the workplace is more than just nine to five or nine to six or seven or whatever. So I, I'm much more hopeful for the millennial generation, whatever that actually means, than some people. So, and continuing that thought about millennials in the workforce, have you are you seeing um, changes with how leadership works because of, I suppose, those generations in the workforce that we've got more diversity and and how are young people influencing leadership in organizations i'm seeing a much a much greater pressure from the younger generation and the female um, female workforce and the minority workforces i'm seeing much more pressure and thank heavens that i'm seeing it for workplaces to get their shit together and that thank god for that because um that workplace that i worked in that insurance company that told me i was going in through the wrong exit and had the t people um those dinosaur based organizations that are pale stale and male um that they are hopefully gone and gone for good and that pressure needs to continue the the, the pressure for equality in the workplace equality of pay parental leave, all of those kind of things. Um, I'm seeing that pressure increase more and more. I'm seeing a much bigger pressure on work-life balance. In my own organization, um, we're currently investigating the four-day working week. Um, Let's be clear what that means. That means that you get paid for five days, but you only work four days. 
Um, so this isn't just about cutting people's salary. I'm, I'm seeing pressure for flexible working so that people have, um, so there's a recognition that people bring their whole self to work. And um, I absolutely 100% support and encourage and encourage all of your listeners to continue that pressure and to rebel against the norm of of the white male dominated workplace. And I say that as a old white bloke. <laughs> no one can see you. Uh, but look, we it's a I guess conjuring up for me a question that comes up time and time again for us and unsurprisingly it's often in the context of some sort of toxicity in regards to leadership we have a uh, number of listeners who will come to us and they will tell us our story their story rather and then they will say how do I influence upwards how do I give feedback how do I change my organization from this position that I'm in where I'm in the first yeah. few years of my career I'm not I've not got seniority or influence through a position title um, and that's a you know another debate we could also have on another day but what would you be your advice in at a practical level for those people in that situation yeah right um it's it, it, there's no there's no that's that's actually um that's such a that's such a deep question mm. um by the way i'm not not remotely patronizing that is actually a really deep question because um it 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 brings in this concept okay of for me of power and um there's absolutely no doubt in a workplace that there's a power dynamic and um so many people don't want to talk about that because they don't like to, this idea that they want to talk about leaders having power. Okay, and it's nonsense because, of course, leaders do have power. And what you're talking about there is a power dynamic that is always going to be unequal. And um, the only advice I can give, and it's very, very direct, and it's completely honest and from the heart, is this: if if there's a power dynamic that's ne that you believe as an employee is never going to be changed and it's uncomfortable and you don't like what you see in that organization, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to change it. So if you've joined an organization as a junior member of staff and you're seeing things above you that you don't like and they don't fit with your cultural norms and your ethics and your morals and all of those kind of things, whatever those things are, you're going to struggle to change those. and um, whilst I wish that were not the case, that is the case. And um, I don't think there's any harm in people moving roles or looking for other roles or I guess what I'm saying is people shouldn't be compromised. Mm. There, there are too many people that stay in the jobs and they're ethically compromised. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's acceptable. I, I think people need to think of a different way and a different workplace. You use this um, phrase at the beginning, which I really loved when you were talking about that insurer that you worked for, where you quickly identified a cultural incompatibility, I think is, the, mm. is what you said. And I love that of, of, I think a lot of people need to be able to identify before they get stuck in a role for too long, I, I'm miserable, my boss sucks, yeah. I can't work here. Yeah. Ha like identifying that incompatibility and then taking a step out of the organisation or into a different role. Even through the recruitment process, we often yeah. encourage this idea that the recruitment process is as much about you sussing out whether or not that's a place that you belong or you'll feel like mm. you belong as it is the employer 
checking you out and making a decision. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I mean, look, I, t- I totally, I totally agree with that. And I do think it's, I do think it's quite difficult though. I think it's very difficult in the modern recruitment process. Um, you know, I, I would encourage people to say that you want to go and have a walk around an office. You want to meet other people from the office. You want to, you want to go out for a coffee with, you know, a marketing assistant or, you know, someone at a different, a different level that's not in the interview process. I completely encourage that because it's very difficult. Like even in a modern recruitment process, you probably only spend 45 minutes actually in an, in the office. And these days, if you're going through a recruitment process, it's probably over Zoom. It's very, very difficult. Um, but, I, but, I, but I totally agree with you, Shell. Like, I think you've got to find out what your cultural um, acceptance is. What, what is it that you want to do? And, and I think, I don't think you should be ashamed or feel guilty or whatever if you leave a place and say that just didn't suit me. Um, and I, I've, I've, as I say, I've told two stories: one with the insurance company, one with the law firm. I've walked out of two organisations because they just didn't suit me culturally. They were, the, the second one was making me depressed. Mm-hmm. It was nothing to do with that. That law firm still exists, and people still work there, and I've still got friends that work there. It just didn't suit me. I didn't yeah. want to work in that environment. It's actually about me. I'm not blame. I have to. It's not just. It's, this isn't about blame. It's actually me. I just didn't want to do that. And I think too many people sit in jobs where, like you say, they've got a toxic boss and they put up with it. And and even worse in many cases, you know, harassment, bullying, and those kind of things. And it it it's, it sounds so easy. And I'm definitely not saying it's easy. And this is where mentoring can come in or finding assistance from from other people and employee assistance programs or whatever. But you you have to come, there has to come a point where you take responsibility for yourself and for your own mental health and you leave. Yeah, that's great. So much of what you've talked about today shows us that our happiness at work, our satisfaction at work, and even the performance of the business is dependent on good and effective leadership. And I love the chance we've had to really dig into this. I think we've got time for one more question, Dave. And so I'd really love to know for any of our listeners today that are considering stepping into a leadership role or feel that that's something that they would love to do in the future, what's one final thought you would give them to say, if you can do anything, do this? I Oh, that's a good question. This is what I'd say. Um, I would encourage people um, to have a very defined and very detailed, this is going to sound really boring now. I'm going to but, it, but it's actually, it's actually um, I was going to say profound. I don't think I've ever said anything <laughs> profound. I think people need a resilience plan. I think, I think people should have a resilience plan. Uh, so, okay, so this comes back to people knowing themselves, right? So I think people should know what it is that can assist them to cope with the stress of being at work and to be able to bounce back. Because I think too many people haven't worked out what it is that allows them to cope and um, my biggest advice to people who want to get into management and leadership is it's not easy it's it, it, it's not all it's cracked up to be um, 50% of the job is is basically process driven and then the rest of it is um, is are, are kind of people issues and things like that and it's actually it's actually really hard I would encourage people to get a resilience plan and when I say a resilience plan, I really do mean a plan that you write down 
on a piece of paper and you keep it near your desk, what it is that assists you in bouncing back from tough times. And I would prioritize those things. Okay, so I'll give you a classic example. I have a member of my leadership team and that person has a resilience plan. And when we have our one-on-ones, I ask that person, have they done this this week? In this in this person's case, it's yoga. And the very first question I ask is, have you done yoga this week? I don't ask about her work. I ask, has she done that? Because if she's not in the right frame of mind um, as, as, a, as a person, then that impacts her work. And I think everybody needs to understand what it is that allows them to cope with the world. Uh, in my case, it's running. If I don't run four times a week, I'm not in a good headspace. Um, so I cope with stuff by going, I told you I've been out for a 20K run this morning. I go out for a run and um, I go and walk my dog. So I've got a number of things that I have written down that I have to do. And when I put my diary together for the week, th- my runs go into my diary before any of my meetings. Because that puts me in the right headspace to perform best at work. And you would have your things. And I would encourage people to focus on themselves first so they can be the best person they can be at work for other people. At the beginning of this conversation, there was, an, well, there was something that you said and I thought, oh, that's such good advice. Okay, that's such a great thought. I'm going oh, I hope to. You remember. Well, I'm <laughs> just thinking. <laughs> Now I don't because there's been so many since then and I'm going to need to listen to this episode back and I'm going to need to do it when I can take Uh, notes. But uh, to finish on this idea of a resilience plan, it's actually – I get quite passionate about the idea of energy and uh, retaining mm. energy and rebuilding energy and then what drains your energy and understanding that. Mm. This term resilience plan, I am taking that and I'm – stealing it, borrowing it, and I'll be mm. using that because it sums up so nicely something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about for myself and, and encouraging in others as well. So I totally get it and I just love this idea of, of having it as a plan rather than just something that you know about yourself. Well, because I think, um, if you don't mind me just adding something right, um, the whole thing about management and leadership, um, what I actually think it's about, a manager and a leader, whatever you want to call it, all that we're supposed to do is make decisions. That's all That's all a manager and leader does. We just make decisions. And what I believe is that you have to set yourself up to be in the best possible frame of mind to make the best possible decision. Whether that decision is about your business, about people, about whatever, you have to be in the right frame of mind. So essentially, you have to be in the right frame of mind. So I would encourage people to work out what it is that puts you in the right frame of mind. It's in, it sounds incredibly selfish, but it's actually really important. I can't make the right decisions about my people unless I'm in the right frame of mind. Otherwise, I make pretty crap decisions. So I have to get myself in the right frame of mind. So it's about energy. For me, it's about resilience. Get your resilience plan. Great. Dave, thank you so much. This has been pure gold. We, I feel oh, like I really enjoyed it. It was great. Yeah, you've we, been very generous with all of your knowledge and, and wisdom. So thank you. And especially after doing a 20K run this morning. So so <laughs> I'm very impressed by that. Now, just to wrap up our, the show for today, I'd love for our listeners to be able to find out more about Institute of Managers and Leaders. Can you just tell us where do we need to go to find out more, consider joining as a member or uh, joining the mentoring program, what do we need to do? 
just go to iml.com.au um, it's everything's on there um, you can join as a member you get free mentoring you can become a chartered manager and professionalize your management and leadership love it that's yeah. great thank you so much we really appreciate your time thanks Cheryl. thanks em Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you listen on Apple, make sure you give us a rating and review. We will look forward to hanging out again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shell. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.